interviews with Antipop Consortium and Berzowski and a bunch of other stuff. We'll get right into it. From the unparalleled, incomparable, incomprehensible Antipop Consortium, this is Beans. I didn't like school, but my father went to um, Bronx Science. So that's, we had kind of conflict growing up. School wasn't easy for me because I didn't want to be there. But in terms of growing up, my father passed around when I was 10 years old, which is the reason why he had moved to, uh, we had moved upstate from Mount Vernon. Uh, I spent most of my formative years in uh, Mount Vernon, like, you know, up until I was 10 years old. And then uh, that's when I moved to White Plains. Can you talk about treading measures? Treading measures. Yeah, taking rhyme in every direction in music. I, w- I was in that group for a, a while before I met this girl named 99. She used to do uh, poetry at the Americans Poets Cafe. I got my start there. One of the uh, hosts of the Narricans Poets Cafe was a guy named Bob Holman. And uh, he hooked up with Bill Adler, who was the publicist for Def Jam at the time. And they did these um, these uh, poetry events called Rap Meets Poetry. They were monthly events on Tuesdays. Uh, also, Soup, which was sponsored through like Giant Step. And we were doing a lot of soup shows with this girl, 99. That's actually how I met Priest. First time I ever saw him perform was at the uh, Rap Meets Poetry event. So it was mainly, I got my start really like starting to do live shows through poetry at the same time. Um, I was with Treading Measures and I actually left Treading Measures to go solo so um, I can continue to do the poetry stuff. So your first foray into music was as an MC, is that right? Yeah, when I was, uh, I started writing when I was 17. Uh, first, originally I was trying to be a DJ. I couldn't really afford the equipment, so it's cheaper to start writing. The name Beans always struck me as pretty strange, especially in the uh, mid-90s for a rapper. What what inspired that name? The guy I was in with Trending Measures. You know how someone with a ball head is called the Baldy Bean? You ever hear that? No. Well, someone with a ball head is sometimes referred to as a Baldy Bean. So instead of saying Baldy Bean, he used to say Ball Beam, and short for that was Beans, and that's where it came from. And then what about the name Rob Ski? How'd you get that name? Uh, that's my name. My name is Robert Edward Stewart II. Yeah, and Ski was just a common kind of hip-hop name at the time, I guess, in the 80s. Yeah. So can you tell me some more about your first um, experiences with performing live at the, uh, the Fez at the time? Underneath the Time Cafe. Can you talk about who, who all you met in that scene some more and how your uh, kind of first groups coalesced and the, the kind of larger scene? Uh, I met Mike Ladd back then. Uh, that's how I met Priest. Priest was always working with, uh, with Earl, Earl Blaze. Right. They went to high school together. And the reason how I met Saeed was uh, he had a, um, a friend that I, I used to work in a store called Mad Grill in White Plains. And that was his childhood friend. I mean, he owned a, Mad Grill, and he came to one of the events, and that's how I met him. So what year was that? Like early 90s, like maybe 93, something like that. I'm specifically interested in Ozone music because back in the early 2000s, Ozone music um, was putting out a lot of music, including some of yours that I, I really liked, and I didn't have much info about it at the time, but it seemed like a lot of the same artists were associated with that label and 
worked together on various projects. And I was wondering if you could talk at all about that scene in general, if it was a scene. Ozone was run by this dude named Michi. He used to manage all of us back in the days. Mike Glad, OP, Hands Up Off, CoFlow. When we first started working with Amici, he had he was already working with CoFlow. Yeah, and what about word sound? Word sound is totally different from Ozone. Word, word sound is is Skiz Fernandez and uh and Sensational and Mr. Dead and all that. That's that's a whole different label. A lot of the artists seemed to work together to some degree. No, not really. It was it was separate. I mean, we all knew each other being from New York doing it. But um, the person who worked a lot, who was really affiliated from Antipop with Word Sound was Saeed. I mean, we did that. We did that cop that that uh, the limited thing for Word Sound. But uh, Word Sound Ozone is two separate things. All right. So when you kind of joined forces with the APC guys, did you feel at all? embraced by the the larger New York hip-hop scene or ignored or rejected or what? We were just doing our thing, you know? I mean, it wasn't necessarily mainstream, but, uh, you know, there was, there were venues that allow for, for underground music, like through the poetry scene and, you know, people had their own lanes and ways of doing things through poetry scenes and hosting their own events and whatnot. From the lyrics in some of your earlier music, I felt like you sort of established yourself as a group, as being in opposition to the mainstream. It was definitely an alternative. Did you feel like you were combating the uh, general run-of-the-mill music in a way, or...? Yeah, that shit was trash. Can you put into plain terms, like, what it was sonically and lyrically the elements that you've that you found abhorrent it was trash it's terrible the commercial shit was it was you know this is a shiny suit era it was terrible during that era the late 90s i guess we're talking about would you say that previous to that there were other strains that were more appealing to you like for example native tongues uh, even like Wu-Tang, how did you relate to those sort of uh, strains, if we can call them that? I mean, for every for every shiny suit era, whack shit, you had, you had a Wu, you had a J-Wu the Damager, you know, Gangstar was in his prime. You had the Roof, you know, you had Mose and Taleb, you know. You had, you know, you, you had the Organized. Would you say that you're orientation towards popular rap music has changed at all over the years? What do you feel about the same? Pop music's still trash. Most of this shit is trash. It's garbage. It's supposed to be. I guess I feel like over the decades, there have been general trends towards where it's gotten maybe a little bit worse and a little bit better. Recently, I feel like there's been a, a little bit more room for experimentation in the mainstream. Do you keep much track of current hip-hop? Uh, not, not the mainstream stuff. But underground hip-hop is very much alive, very much thriving. There are some very interesting happens. And in terms of that, hip-hop is in a good place. From, you know, the Backwoods studio stuff, you know, Army Hammer to, you know, all the Griselda, you know, the Benny, the Butchers, the Conways, the West Side Guns, you know, Mac Homie. 
Rock Marciano, you know, Ka. That aspect to hip hop is 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 dope. But I don't consider that mainstream though. That's just underground music. That's just good hip hop. That shit is dope. But in terms of uh major label shit, I don't pay attention to that shit. That shit is trash. Yeah, I've heard I definitely heard you feature a lot of those, uh what I would consider the some of the cream of the crop of the underground on your own uh music. You've mentioned um Vernon Reed as being a mentor. Can you uh, talk about your relationship with him? Vernon was the first person to take me on tour. I met Vernon through the, the author, Greg Tate. He used to work at the Village Voice at the time, and he wrote Flyboy and the Buttermilk, that book. He introduced me to Vernon. Vernon, Vernon took me under his wing, and I started doing my first uh, tours with Vernon. Was that your f- very first uh, song that you were featured on as an MC on his solo album? No, first time I was featured on was Shaquille. Thunder in the sky, thunder, thunder in the sky, flying high and wide in the breeze, blowing through the trees. So my whip swims, words, and whirly birds, but we'll chase for years. But air pushes maintain. As far as your solo career, basically you were working mostly as self-produced, and then you you stopped doing much of your own production, especially like in the last decade. What led you to that change? It's not really for me. I prefer I prefer just the, the freedom and just to write. Yeah. I also noticed that you've been much more prolific in the last few years. You did the novel as well as just a gang of albums. Well, when I, I did um, Wolves, Love Me Tonight, and um, Haas, it took five years. So I had a five-year break before I came back. So all the albums that are coming out have been plotted for the past five years. But did you take a break previous to that then, where you weren't actually making music much? Nah, I mean, after the end of it all, uh, I did my last album for Anticon. And then after that, I just started working on the book and, and the three album idea. Right, right. But I just kept working. Yeah, speaking of that, you've changed uh, labels a lot over your career, from some pretty big ones like Warp to self-releasing on your own label, Tiger Rock Records. And um, besides labels changing, the music industry in general has totally transformed between now and the late 90s. So I wonder if you can sum up the different ways of releasing your music over the years and if you've ended up finding a model that works better for you or if it's just a endless matter of adapting to the, the changes in the industry and within labels. I didn't leave labels due to a change in the industry. I left labels for various reasons. But right now, where I'm at now is cool. I would, it's not like I would never sign to a label again, but right, right now, I'm, I'm enjoying doing what I'm doing. And where you're at now is you're co-releasing music with your own label and smaller labels. Is that correct? Sure, you could, you could say that. I've noticed that in more recent years, your lyrics have included themes of extreme violence and sex, not just in the music, but in your novel. And I wonder if that's something that you've been aware of or if you can comment at all on on that. No, not really. I mean, the sex part, I think I've actually calmed down a lot. Over time, I think the lyrics have been more like, socially aware of what's happening, more observant of what's happening in the climate of, of today, much less dealing with violence and sex. Okay. What about, like, the novel? It's basically... Well, it's about, it's about a serial killer who 
guess because that's why I record and becomes himself. So the novel is, you know, I mean, I read mysteries a lot. And uh, you, uh, you ever hear that I was influenced by this dude named Matthew Stoku? No. Uh, he wrote Highlight, this book, High Life. High Life was a big influence on, on, on Dot Tonight. Do you plan on doing more long form writing like that? Yeah, I did this with the last album, um, Ace Balbazar. I did this thing, uh, this like little chat book called um, I Came for Blood. And in between the chat book uh, was these sections, this section of a story called Lulu. And um, uh, I, I had plans to expand on what I started with Lulu. Cool. I think I think it's definitely reflective of the times, but I haven't started anything yet. All right. Um, when Team Breakup comes out, uh, I've already written the next one called Venga, and I'm having to have trying to have Venga come out in the fall, and then I'm trying to follow up Venga with with another album for like around March. So I haven't really, and plus I started writing um, I started writing a screenplay, and I've been working on those things at the same time. So I haven't really gotten back to the book. Awesome. Yeah, let's talk about Team Breakup. I listened to it a couple times, and I found it very unique and layered, and I keep hearing different things in it. Um, I don't feel like I've completely grasped it, but I do appreciate it, and um, I just wonder how you would describe it yourself. Um. I try to make an album that no albums will sound alike, and I just thought it was a complete. As a, um, I thought it was a, a nice matchup, but right after um, Ace Balbazar, com- completely unexpected. I don't think after listening to Ace Balbazar, you expect to hear an album like Team Breakup. So for me, all these albums is just merely just challenging my pen and trying to. Uh, it, it's all an experiment to me, so no album is ever going to sound the same. But. Um, I, I got the I got the trash from the dude who produced it named Steve Freshfield. He had hit me up on Facebook and was like, yo, I got beats for you. So and he sent them. And, and then by the time that Ace came out, I was already working on Team Breakup. So usually by the time another album is out, I'm already working on the next one. I like the writing on Team Breakup. I think Team Breakup came out, came out cool. Yeah, it's awesome. I would... I felt like um, your vocals were much more in the vein of spoken word as opposed to rap music. I know that it's kind of a blurry line between the two, but... um, To me, there's no distinction. Right. I felt like rhythmically, there seemed to be less of a accentuation on a 4-4 rhythm, more uh, a bit of like a free jazz sort of rhythm less tethered to a uh, steady beat and tempo would you agree with that i just work with what he gave me yeah so you're basically responding to the beats which are very um i would say frenetic they have what i would call contrasting rhythms and yeah it's it's very different i felt the magic and you didn't i felt the magic and you didn't we are two continents attracted to each other yet afraid to collide. I love her and she loves him. You just plugged into me and drained me. We had an old internet dial-up love that took too long to connect. I told her I love you and she replied, why haven't you seen any of my Instagram stories? I want her to love me and she just wants to make love to me and love him. She said if you're choking me and the dick ain't good, I'm calling the cops. 
She said if you choking me in the dick ain't good, I'm calling the cops. And then there's the element of turntable scratching on I think every song, right? Yeah, there's there's scratches on on every track. How did the scratching element come into it? Was that part of the beats originally or did you decide? No, I added that. I had a DJ named Marcus Scratching. There's a dude who I liked his voice. I actually used him for the intro to Nibiru Tut. So I had him repeat the titles of each track on Team Breakup and then sent it to Marcus to scratch. I've always loved scratching and I feel like it's been a sort of mis- misunderstood and underappreciated form of instrumentation. Honestly, the reason why I like to incorporate scratching is because it is part of the elements of hip hop that's underutilized because everyone currently in hip hop does it is not in a group format and they're mostly soloists and individuals. And as hip hop now is consistent, the landscape of it is not necessarily group orientated and the DJ's role is not as not as prevalent as it once was. And I grew up in an era when the DJ was part of the band. So I always try to, when I can, I try to incorporate that element in, in my work. Usually when you go to a show, you see an MC backed up with a laptop. But, you know, I, I, I like to go to a show with a DJ. I had a DJ who was working with a DJ for a long time. Um, before I started taking on toilets, the producer that I worked with more consistently, uh, AFAST. But um, I, I like scratches. Yeah, I think it's a shame that it's not used more. I mean, it's it's a very versatile and dynamic way of of adding instrumentation. Well, part of it is maybe the equipment. Like you said, you know, it's cheaper to be a MC than a DJ, but I don't think it has anything to do with the equipment. It has to do with the culture. You know, it's not it's not DJ oriented anymore. Yeah, I, I hope that it can make a resurgence. I actually with my quarantine, I've been finally learning how to properly scratch using a wireless fader and my phone as the turntable, which surprisingly seems to emulate it pretty well, but I don't know. It does seem to be out of style, but maybe it'll have a little resurgence. But um, yeah, tell me about your, your current projects. What sort of styles are you um, headed in? Are you, are you continuing the sort of vein of team breakup or going in a completely different direction? What, what can we expect? Well, as I said, no album is going to sound the same. So the next one, Venga is only six songs and it doesn't sound anything like team breakup. Recession, a poor lack of immediate response to amendment of spread of a virus brought on by a worldwide display of idiots, reinforced by lack of visibly adequate leadership, a global disaster Voltron. I write this quarantined in my house slippers when hold up fails to hold up. I will be talking to Earl Blaze tomorrow. Can you talk at all about how your relationship was, what he brought to the table with Antipop? Earl was the sound of Antipop. There was no Antipop without the sound of Earl Blaze. Uh, I know you worked with him a little bit on the Shaki album. Have you worked with Blaze outside of, of that in Antipop? I recorded some tracks from Tomorrow Right Now at Earl's house. And maybe like two tracks on End It All. And then I, I recorded Night Fight with him, the EP Night Fight. Anything else you want to tell the world? Yeah, just stay tuned for, you know, upcoming stuff uh, probably around March. 
should be a pleaser. And then maybe next summer, like around this time again, will be um, Trey Craft. Earl Blaze. Yes, sir. What's happening there? Not much, man. How you doing? Just trying to keep from exploding in the heat. That's all. It's quite warm here. You in New York City? Yeah, I'm in Brooklyn right now. Are you you from there originally? Were you born and raised there? Yes, definitely. I mean, the planet I'm originally from, I don't really know, have any memories of that. So my, my only recent memory is that, yeah, it was uh, here I was born. That's what my mom told me. So I'm taking her word for it. Never felt any inklings to uh, relocate? Um, well, the fact that I can't get off the planet, <laughs> if I can't do that, then I might as well stay where I'm at. Yeah. That's my whole theory right now. But um, I like France. I mean, I've visited some places that i like to go back and visit again. Switzerland was great. Um, Russia was good. It's hard to get in there. But, yeah, so what's going on with you? Just trying to get this weird rap podcast started. <laughs> Just kind of trying to generally document this alternative strain of rap music that I don't see a lot of other people paying attention to. But uh, I feel like with you and Antipop, Anti-pop consortium, if I'm pronouncing it correctly. I've heard it pronounced many different ways. Yeah, no, consortium is the correct pronunciation. Yeah, that's it. Right. And anti-pop, not anti-pop. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's what I call it. <laughs> so, you know, but um, every time we do an album, these guys like to choose a name that can be, you know, spelled more than one way. But, you know, I just find that to be just a part of... Of of the aesthetic of the insanity that, you know, I mean, arrhythmia, um, tragic epilogue, fluorescent black. You know, you can spell those. All of those can have, like, fluorescent has more than one spelling. Epilogue can be spelled more than one way. Arrhythmia is not the, the, the simplest word to spell. You know, like, they just making things difficult. But, you know, that's, yeah. the, I mean, it seems to me that's the APC way. I'm usually never involved in the album titling, but, you know, that's like, Beans or, or, you know, usually the ringleader in, sometimes in, in the naming of things. And he always does the album orders. That's the one thing that is relegated to him. Okay. Is the order of how the album will go. Interesting. Yeah, I guess difficulty is, it does seem to be a common theme running through the music. Like it, uh, it's not for your casual listener, I would say, from the language, the titles, to the just the sonic quality itself, which is something I've always loved about it personally. But um, let's go back. Can you talk about, like, walk us through the uh, progression from you and Priest working together to gradually adding the other members that would form anti-pop and how uh, you ended up putting out the mixtapes until you finally like kind of coalesced as anti-pop consortium. Well, the, um, I was in the studio all the time, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. Um, I didn't leave. I didn't get out much. So a lot of people that I met ended up meeting here for the first time, like at my place in the basement. So yeah, there were like, you know, um, events and such performance places where, you know, they would meet and like, you know, I guess, you know, kind of that's where the, the, the introductions would happen, but I was usually not there. I was usually in the house trying to finish working on something. 
So it was like, you know, 1999 was when uh, we recorded um, Disorientation, because that song, Apani, B-Fly, was the, the guest star on that song, and that was the actual song that um, kind of was the catalyst for everything that happened after that with the labels looking at us and whatnot. Live like wet fingers in the socket. It was in that um, time zone where it kind of started to coalesce together. And then, you know, um, the stuff on the tragic epilogue, some of that wasn't even recorded at my place at all. Like they were recorded on like uh, um, ADAT. I think he had there was a, a dude in the Bronx that they were recorded by. A lot of that I didn't have control over all of the tracks, like, you know, mixing them. Like some of them were just stereo files that I just had to kind of tweak. So it was a, a, it was a hodgepodge of different sonics on there, which, I mean, ended up being a, a good thing in general, I guess, you know, just to kind of give it different textures, but it wasn't something that I had that much control over. So they were different textures, you know, just due to what was given to me to put it together. It's a great album through and through, I'd say. Um, but before that album, Tragic Epilogue, I heard there was this series of mixtapes, which I have not been able to find. Can you talk about those at all? They were called the Consortium Tapes, but that's where the name came from, I understand. But those were tapes that these guys were putting together and putting out. I actually don't even recall like having one myself because I wasn't, you know... Well, it's funny because yesterday Beans described you as the nucleus of anti-pop. I definitely, you know, helped to, I guess, create a sound around it. I mean, it wasn't um, intentional as much as, you know, just, just the way that I wanted to make sure that an album is supposed to sound cohesive because that's how, you know, from listening to um, you know, albums like, um, you know, Pink Floyd, um, and, you know, and Zeppelin, you know, like I, I was aware that, you know, you had to make um, cohesive projects. And so it was important that even though the songs were done, especially in this case, done with different producers in different places um, sometimes, that you had to make sure that it sounded like it was one idea. It had to flow. And that's where I came in. I would, you know, make sure that the final process, each of the songs kind of blended, you know, from one to the next. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you you did a great job of uh, keeping cohesion within the albums that were very far ranging as far as the sounds and styles within them. But, um, you know, as a listener at the time, I associated anti-pop with other artists that were, I guess, part of the same management of Ozone music, Rob Sonic, Mike Ladd, Saul Williams, and Company Flow. Um, would you say that was actually a scene in real life, or was that just something that was because of the management, or how would you describe that kind of assortment of artists? And the, I felt like there was a, a common thread of this sort of abstract poetic style and approach to, to rap music. Well, that was probably, um, I would say it was the manager himself being, um, I guess a fan of each of them. And it was a way that, you know, he could kind of, um, move the 
the the abstract kind of you know sonics like you know in a in a certain direction like as a management you know company that that would be the the signature I'm assuming that that was what his idea was you know um but I had met um Mike Ladd at a, a poetry um performance at the Fez it was called at the time in you know, New York. Yeah, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, he was impressive. Who's rubbing them brain cells? I got gridlock in my city block, aka cell block, shell shock, got a lock from Atlanta to Woodstock, Boston, Washington, New York's just downtown like a city one. Guns are like jewelry, they're carrying Tom Fury. I'll soothe me while open information does loop, loop, So, did you feel like you were part of a, of a movement or like a kind of a, a common aesthetic or style or were you just kind of doing what you do? No, I was just doing what I did. I mean, cause I, like I wasn't even um kind of privy to like the other artists' projects per se on the on the the under the management. Like I was always in the studio working. I mean, always. Like a good portion of my life was in my basement. Like you know, just staring at, at computer monitors, twisting knobs. I mean, you know, it was it was pretty pathetic. You know, if I look back on it. But you know, I guess I was honing. Um, my craft, I suppose. Well, yeah, a you lot know, of so. a lot of great stuff came out of that basement time. I would say. Um, I know that anti-pop is split up, or at least on hiatus. And without getting into any like personal differences, I was wondering if you could talk about um, what the differences were in the creative directions that that led to you well, guys. I don't, I don't. I don't necessarily think that the creative um, directions were that they, that they collided because, um, these, for example, wanted to do more, um, long, longer formed songs. Cause he had done a couple of those early on, like, you know, his own stuff. And like, you know, just, um, where they were like six minutes, seven minutes, like, you know, he likes like, you know, like things that are long form. He likes that. So he wanted to go down that road and I'm okay with that because I mean, as you know, I like, um, thematic, um, albums and, and things that change as they go along is, is, is right up my alley. So that's not a problem. And then, um, Saeed, um, wanted to, to, to venture into like doing tracks that really didn't use drums and were more like just percussive elements and sound like, you know, kind of, a, um, another approach to making tracks. And so that's what Endgame kind of, um, was was hinting at because I did Endgame to be sort of very open ended and loose in as far as like the way that the rhythms went. So I mean, those were long form songs that had a lot of movement. And what Saeed's talking about is not different. So I mean, the creative places where they wanted to go, they're not in opposition with each other at all. So so creative differences is not really. I, I, not the issue. So, um, so then the question, um, I guess you may ask after is, is it a possibility for us getting together again? I'm like, Hey, you know what? Anything is possible. Um, you know, so Bean says you're the nucleus. I mean, I, I, I like creating, there's, there's nothing better than creating music on your own terms and having people actually enjoy it. And that's what working in anti-pop affords me. So, I mean, you're not going to get any arguments from me, especially because um, what I enjoy most is hearing um, how much 
people are inspired and enjoy the music. You are, uh, you're definitely an important group for me. And, um, whether you ever reform as a group or not, I think that a lot of people would appreciate some releases of, of stuff from the vaults and even just, you know, kind of repackaging some of your old releases, you know, there's definitely a, a market and a, and a good, uh, argument for sort of, um, reamplifying that music. Cause I, I think it's timeless in a lot of ways and, and should be heard by more people. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm not against it, you know, so, um, I guess, I guess we shall see, right? Yep. We shall see. H prism. I was part of the African-American studies program. So I was teaching, you know, a curriculum that I put together, which was called, um, a global view of hip hop. Is that a course that anyone could take online? Well, it was specifically, I was teaching at Drexel. Yeah. So, you know, that was for the student base there, but, you know, depending on, you know, how things progress with this current climate, it may make sense to put together some course study online and just have, you know, those things as part of a class. So, you know, I'm kind of weighing the options now. I'm sure plenty of people would be interested in that. Um, I'm recording. I'll, uh, I'll include most of that, but a proper intro. I'm here with Kyle Austin, AKA H prism, AKA high priest, AKA Anton tone bar of Iltet airborne audio, anti-pop consortium and Celebione. How do you say that? Yeah. Just without the E at the end. Celebione. Uh-huh. Yeah, that project is great. I just um, heard that recently, actually, in my uh, research for this interview. This time change, my mind frame elevates faster. Self law and mastery is my aim. My destiny's imminent. Every angle I enter and swarm in a pyramid for the here and now. Jews I find under three fourths water from flooded streets I was brought up. For listeners that haven't heard it, S E L E B E Y O N E with accents on the first three E's. I uh, highly recommend it. Um, going back to your aliases, you established yourself mostly as High Priest, and you've recently been calling yourself H-Prism. You were High Prism briefly, I believe. Um, so can you tell me what's the reason for your uh, name switching? Um, you know, the H-Prism is kind of like uh, I was doing a lot of sets in the beat space and um because of my past a lot of people were expecting it to be a more vocal performance so it felt better just to present that style performance as a separate brand as opposed to confusing the agenda but as a side note a lot of the uh, material for anti-pop was made without the consideration of rhymes for it either. So combined with my original intent, it felt right at home and it made a lot of sense. And I kind of started following that path. Yeah. I was uh, surprised when I heard the album um, magnetic memory, because I assumed it was going to be instrumental, but that's basically a, a rap album. And I, I highly recommend that one. 
Cinematic magic movies on the corner Go to sleep to siren Setting dreams on fire By any means had to get it to benefit As a father but I never sold a brick But I held Anita That's my oldest daughter Hoping our aim was the right direction for From early on I would see she was here before Family lines connected But your latest solo release I believe Is titled Loops are a form of meditation Which is instrumental So I was wondering if you could talk about Your philosophy on looping and how you relate it to meditation. Sure, man. Um, in the beginning of um, electronic music and tape-based music, coming from tape-based loops, and a lot of the early you know, electronic music pioneers, you know, if you're looking at someone like a Steve Reich, his compositions made sense more as loops and even before he got into the percussive and piano stuff, a lot of that stuff was just vocal tape loops that, you know, he put in a different phase. And, um, you know, a lot of the early electronic composers, since they were working to tape, a lot of their loops were created from, you know, modular synth being recorded on tape, cut, and then edited and hip hop is the modern ancestor of that school of production. It makes me think how, you know, cycles are a real part of nature and that meditation a lot of times is about the breath in and out, the repetition and listening to that album I definitely felt like a almost like a trance like effect. Uh, cool, man. Would you say, when you say it's uh, meditation, would you say that's like for you as a composer as well as the listener, or how did you mean it? Yeah, I'm on both ends, because when I'm making this stuff, I, like I may listen to it for hours on end, you know. So, you know, my thought was just to give people a window into the process. You mentioned that you're you're teaching what was the course title again? Global Politics of Hip Hop. Right. And then online it, it said that your compositions have been presented in over fifty countries. Does that mean that you yourself have performed in all those countries? For the most part, along with, you know, having some installations here and there. So yeah, what has your international perspective showed you or taught you how has it changed your regard for hip-hop from just growing up in new york um it's great to see how people in other spaces have found their own voice within the hip-hop medium and the relevancy of the actual term hip-hop has changed a lot and even though there's you know the web you know, mass media is still very strong. You know, there are dominant narratives that, you know, people kind of embrace as part of the culture. Being able to separate authenticity versus corporate manipulation is interesting to see 
you know, how those two dynamics play out on a global scale in different markets, you know, how does someone in Venezuela present themselves as an authentic B-boy? What does that look like? You know, and just seeing what components of it, you know, they're drawn to, what figures they're drawn to. Shout out to Bahamadia. If that's a category fit for Grammy like so sports and competitors better look out like Pac Jam once I recall. Innovation. The first to influx information no relation to what You know, I went on tour with her to document and do visuals. And we were in Colombia and there were like murals of her and people like running out of their job to see her and gathered at the hotel and stuff like that. So just to see someone who committed themselves to the craft, you know, have that type of reception at this stage in their career in a whole separate market in a way that's different even than they might be embraced in some markets here was interesting to see. Yeah. Are there any particular um, cities or countries that you found to have an interesting approach to hip hop that stands out to you? Uh, Everywhere, man. Like there was a time where I was a lot more critical, I guess, in a a lot of ways. And I think that that kind of limited my experience. Like I don't need to hear an imitation of, you know, a given rapper from the United States, but rhyming in French, you know, like, I don't need to hear that. Yeah. So just hearing like people pulling from their cultural background and bringing those things to the forefront was interesting to see everywhere. But, um, you know, shout out to people like Drake. Some people call him a cultural tourist or, you know, an appropriator. But at the same time, with his pop status, he can reach in and and bring grime to the forefront or reach in and bring some of the Montreal-based hip-hop to the forefront or start dealing with some kind of trance, IDM, hybrid stuff, and people follow suit with it. So I think the, the states kind of synthesize the best of a lot of things that are happening globally at this point. But, um, you know, I think there's a lot that's still untapped. Yeah, and it does take someone, I think, that has status at the level of Drake or something to make those connections and bring them back to us because most of the, you know, the masses aren't really going to go do their research necessarily online and find the interesting international stuff. But, um, yeah, I also read online that you have worked with a bunch of different artists, shared stages with people like Public Enemy and Radiohead. So I wonder if you can talk about some of the standout experiences you've had collaborating with other artists. What were some of your greatest honors? Um, with the two groups that you mentioned, with Radiohead, that was on the strength of the second anti-pop album. You know, they were, you know, fans of the material and reached out. And um, just to be a part of that conversation was inspiring at the time. What did you do with Radiohead specifically? I never caught wind of that. 
Oh, we went on tour during the Kid A album. Oh, cool. And it was the same with P.E. You know, in 2010, we had went on tour with them in Cool Keith. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are definitely uh, some of experimental hip-hop's greatest artists, I would say. Um, as far as collaborating on music, um, do you have any standout experiences there? Honestly, the the ultimate really was just having the opportunity to collaborate as a group, you know, with the members of APC because we all lived very far apart at the time. So we weren't always all together. So the instances where we were were less than a lot of people would think. We were all parents at the time, still are parents, thankfully, you know, working real jobs and making a way through the independent music scene at the time. So our schedules combined with the distance that we lived apart was crazy. So, you know, we were mostly collaborating in shifts. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, anti-pop, I've said before, I consider it to be something like the Beatles of experimental rap music. You know, of course, you didn't achieve their level of fame, but for me and a lot of other listeners, I know that you represented a real force and an inspiration for groundbreaking hip hop. And, you know, no one can ever really quantify how much your work ended up influencing subsequent generations of hip hop, but whether it was firsthand influences or passed down through the, uh, the waves of artists, I, uh, I'd put you up with, uh, the greats of, uh, avant-garde hip hop. And so I, I wonder if you can just talk about the beginning formation of the group and also talk about the infamous consortium mixtapes. Well, let me just say that the tapes themselves brought together the concept of us being a group, but the concept of the tapes was more of a compilation. Right. But from the reception of the tapes, you know, people, you know, just kind of inferred and then we kind of fell in line with that after the fact. Yeah, you know, when I first heard the group just after your uh, first album came out, I think it was right when it came out, I was immediately attracted to the name Anti-Pop because, you know, I, I guess I've always been a sort of against-the-grain type, and, and beyond the name, you know, from the, the sonic quality to the lyrical approach, I feel like you guys really embodied a sort of combative spirit. I felt like you were sort of revolting against the rest of hip hop or at least the mainstream hip hop. And there's a real anti-establishment element. And even I hear that in some of your most recent lyrics too. So I just wonder if you can comment on your orientation to the mainstream throughout your life and how you've regarded mass culture. Well, most, you know, cultural movements become co-opted at some point. And with hip-hop, it felt like it was happening too early within its growth and development. And particularly in the 90s, 
there was a lot of groups and a lot of artists that were vocal about that sentiment, you know. So in that respect, what we were saying wasn't uncommon. It was just more we wanted to be as original as possible. You know, we wanted to pay homage to our influences by doing our best not to sound directly like anybody. And um, a lot of times, just because of, you know, corporate manipulation, there's a manufactured consensus towards certain elements that we were definitely not in promotion of. And um, we wanted to make that clear from the onset. So our goal was just to really let people know what we were not. (laughs) And um, yeah, in terms of pop, I actually am a big fan of most pop music, but just being in a close proximity to a lot of artists, I know the inner workings of how pop stars are manufactured and that model doesn't transfer to hip hop in an organic way. In a lot of instances, you know, it's really only more so now that you can have someone like a, or I'll leave a blank, but you know, just to have like a large pop artist be a B-boy in essence or a hip hop artist in essence. And you still see, a manufactured component to them. And, you know, you have someone like a Kendrick, that's kind of like an exception to that. And, you know, a handful of others, but like for Kendrick to make the art that he makes at the level he makes it is a huge, like major feat to me. Yeah. And, um, when I see him, I see like, the evolution of the good life and, you know, the whole West Coast movement with some sprinklings of, you know, Atlanta really synergized in a big way. Right. And um, that's something that's only recently possible. So, you know, those are the things that we were kind of speaking for, you know, early on when we were making those statements. Yeah. So another thing that I've heard a lot in your lyrics uh, with the group, as well as a solo artist, is uh, sci-fi references. And I wonder if you have any thoughts to share on a few of your predecessors that also seem to have that that sci-fi streak in them and who I would guess would be an influence on you. Those are Ram LZ, Divine Styler, and Cool Keith. Oh, man, I love them all. Thankful you know, to have interacted with, you know, all of them to different degrees. You know, honestly, at the essence, like most pure, like, B-boys usually have a sci-fi bent to them. It's just something that goes hand in hand. Like, if you look at a graffiti artist like Futura, you mm, know, yeah. Ram LZ, you know what I'm saying, Tool Keith, Ultra Magnetic, like Rakim you know, divine style with Islam being at the forefront as well. It comes off as scientific. So it it veers into the realm of sci-fi, but um, what's being expressed 
or presented as sci-fi, I think more so is the influence of Islam and knowledge itself in, you know, the real prototypical B-boys that kind of makes the two elements go hand in hand. Yeah, for sure. I I wanted to ask you also about uh, the sort of spiritual references that I hear in your lyrics. And if you could talk about uh, if you identify with any certain types of mysticism or anything. Well, for me, just as a student in those ways, I tend to just look for different tools to have knowledge of self. And, you know, from my studies and explorations, what resonated with me is drawing certain through lines. And then that led me to Islam. So I have my personal relationship with it. But, um, you know, everybody's relationship with their respective self-exploration is very individualized and should be approached as such. Yeah. Yeah, I also, I wanted to talk about how in the late 90s, early aughts, when I was first uh, hearing your music, I associated you with other artists like Mike Ladd, Saul Williams, Sonic Sum, and Company Flow. You all seem to be on associated projects and labels. And to me, you represented a sort of revolutionary movement in music that seems even more important to me now looking back at it than it did at the time. But uh, even at the time, it was very special to me. And I wonder if um, you could talk about what your feelings were as far as that whole scene went when you were in the midst of it and, and how you look back at it now since so much time has passed. Uh, well, thankfully, I'm still pretty much connected to most of the people that you mentioned. And, um, you know, I'm always amazed at how fast time, you know, moves in general. So all of that stuff is still, like, very fresh in my mind, even though it's over 20 years ago at this point. But, um, you know, it was a great incubator, and we were all managed by the same people. You know, shout out to Amici. You know, he just fostered an environment, you know, with a sick roster and, you know, just had the foresight to kind of help open up certain markets for all of us and really help us really find our own respective niche. You know, so it was great that everybody was their own unit, but we were all kind of synergized through Amici and everything. So, you know, I'm super proud to see the stuff that he's doing now with, you know, the Run the Jewels project. And, uh, you know, that was all kind of like a a tiered growth of um, progression that I'm glad to see. You know, like seeing them win feels like a win for all of us, you know, in the sense that, you know, I'm glad to see them at the tier that they're at doing it in the way that they're doing it. Yeah. At the time, did you have any sense how important you all might be towards shifting 
the culture at large? Was there any thought of that or were you more just focused on uh, the art you were making at the time? You know, I was super aware because I could see it, you know, like even before I started doing music, I did PR. So the firm that I worked for, they handled all of um, the mid-90s press for Def Jam and um, Elektra, you know, Public Enemy, Beastie Boys, Ice Cube, KRS, like that was their roster at the time. So, you know, I had a little bit of foresight just in terms of how trends move, and I could see how what we were doing was influencing the culture in a big way without people even necessarily attributing it to us per se. I could say, wow, okay, we started this format of production and now here it is at the forefront. Here we go as the first group to do A, B, and C. Now it's that. Oh, they got that from my man Saul. Oh, they got that from my man Mike Ladd. So I was watching that happen in real time and just being like, okay, well, I just have to accept the role that we're kind of like more of a couture rap group. And, you know, we're putting out the looks for 2020 in the year 2000. So even then we were like trying to visualize what the music would sound like now. Yeah. Did you ever work with Saul Williams specifically? Um, we did work together as a quick side note with him. You know, he, he never really wanted to be a producer. Right. But I always thought that he should be. Hmm. So he produced this album and it was pretty much done. And then he reached out to me to co-produce it with him. And I was like, yo, dude, this album's done. Like, you don't need me. Like, the album is done. You, you need to put it out like this now. And right as we were having that conversation, maybe like a few days later, Rick Rubin reached out and was like, yo, I want to produce the record. And we were like, yo, Rick Rubin. But when I heard the album after Rick put his hands on it, you know, with all respect, I felt like it was better in the original iteration. Wow. Was that Amethyst Rockstar? Yeah. Oh, wow. So we got to, I got to hear the, the demo. Damn. Yeah. The demos of that album were, were crazy. Wow. And some of it survived, but Saul was moving in the direction that Radiohead was moving and there wasn't really a lane for a black artist to be presented in that type of way at that time. You know, like once you step out of the boundaries of hip hop in the United States, 
it's almost like you're in a no man's zone as a black artist. And um, just speaking about Saul, a lot of his projects were fumbled because of the labels that he was dealing with, lacking the ability to contextualize his work in a real way and create a story around it that was engageable and put the marketing dollars in really, you know, putting him in the space that he needed to be in. So that was always a challenge. But um, he was a lot closer to someone like, say, TV on the radio. And the same could be said for Divine Styler at a point. Yeah. You know, his, his second album had those type of leanings that could have been presented in this nuanced space. Right. Like, if... um. Spiral Autumns of Light, that um, second uh, Divine Style album. If that album had came out as a rock album and just was presented as... Right. He would have been Radiohead before Radiohead. But there was no context for that space, you know. But um, someone like Tricky, mm. they have a different infrastructure and a different modality around those presentations. So he could get that off overseas and then use his cachet as a you know top-selling artist to move in the States. But on the inverse, there's no model for that. So, you know, that was something that all of us maneuvering around as B-boys who had one foot in hip-hop and another foot in, you know, whatever other space you want to call it, trying to find a way to present in its full dynamism, you know, was challenging. Yeah, that all definitely rings true to me. Do you think that the general music world is more open to that sort of genre melding today than it was back then? Yeah, hello, you know, because the people who did it now had those albums as building blocks. You know, saw his work with Kanye. CX, who was our DJ, you know, also worked with Kanye. A lot of artists were influenced by APC influenced by company flow and able to take those looks into a more primed market. Yeah. Um, speaking of anti-pop, I know that you're on hiatus or I don't know if it's permanently broken up, but uh, I spoke to Earl Blaze and he said, as far as he's concerned, there could be future anti-pop projects, you know, and, if nothing else, I think that you guys could sell a lot of APC t-shirts. You guys would have an amazing box set. I feel like, you know, you, you guys could could really be cashing in on your legacy a bit. You uh you think about that at all? Yeah, it's something that we're in talks with 
now just, you know, finding the, you know, right partners to bring together to make it happen and, you know, looking at the best way to really make people care. (laughs) Yeah. I think you deserve a more vaunted place in the hip hop history books. Um, as a listener, I don't like need new APC music. I'm, I'm perfectly happy listening to all your, your current solo projects. I think they're great. Um, speaking of that, what do you have on the horizon? What can we expect from you in the future? Um, doing a bunch, you know, thankfully at the moment, you know, I took a step kind of out of my comfort zone and had some pleasant results. So, you know, there's a couple of things that we're pretty excited about. And, um, you know, I'm doing a, a good amount of production and engineering work right now. So I'm thankful to have it during these trying times. And, you know, I'm also just really working in anticipation of one day being back in a live space, although I still feel that there may not be a crowd. We will see. Yeah, the future is looking more and more unpredictable. Um, That sounds interesting as far as taking some new risks or stepping outside of your comfort zone. Can you elaborate at all on, on that? Yeah, well, you know, I've always shied away from singing and like, you know, melody in a strong, you know, upfront type of way. But, um, you know, I had some, uh, good results, you know, messing around with, you know, there was some material that I was looking to sell, you know, that I demoed. And then once the publishers heard the demo version, they were pretty excited. So it it was, you know, an unintended surprise to see. So, you know, we'll see where it goes beyond that. Awesome. And then you've been doing the uh, live stream lately. Do you want to let people know uh, about that and how they can find it? Uh-huh. That's um, every Saturday, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on Instagram Live at Age Prism. And it's the Rebel Broadcast sharing things that I'd like to be in a building sharing at the moment, giving me a different relationship with my own catalog because I've been finding stuff to play. It's, you know, from stuff that I just have around. So, you know, that's the Rebel Broadcast. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, man. Cool. Thank you, man. My beginnings were um, on 148th Street in Harlem, across from the number three train uh, in what's called the Dunbar Apartments in Harlem. And I lived there until I was uh, seven. And then my parents, uh, who were both like, very conscious folks uh, decided that they wanted a better life for their son in terms of environment. So they, they brought me up where there's more trees and where there's, you know, a suburban environment. So I grew up uh, in a suburban household um, in kind of an American dream um, road in a city called Yorktown Heights. I grew up there and I, I just, by the time I was about 12 or so, you know, just just got heavily into like BMX, skateboarding, and like alternative culture. So that was about 82, 83 when I was, you know, actually kind of young. And then, man, I just got heavily into it. And I just dove right into all things that are alternative from music, 
hardcore punk um alternative music and then and of course rap you know what i mean and so it's like big in the scene in the bmx scene in the new york city like late 80s bmx scene so the idols in those days were like dennis mccoy and uh kenneth evans just just a bunch of street riders maurice meyer on the west coast and dave vanderspeck and there's a lot of og like first edition street riding on bmx you know what i mean so i was i was heavy in that world and then um got to be about 19 lived on the west coast uh after graduating high school and uh when i lived on the west coast man i just lived with all the the best of the best in like the BMX world. So I lived with Mick Phillip, the designer, the art director uh, of, uh, of, of, a, of a magazine in London. And uh, I was just around some very cutting edge people. Then I, I met a girl, she got pregnant when I was 19. And uh, wow, I was like, man. And, but I ended up raising my son and we, I stayed with the same girl for like 20 years. And we lived in, in New York, moved back to New York, raising kids, doing music. Man, I don't know, it's been a, been a, then I moved to Paris, man, it's been a, been a pretty big life, man. Where were you on the West Coast? Uh, I was in San Jose. Okay. Yeah, I was in San Jose, so I was uh, in that San Jose energy. So, you know, I was like 80s, listening to Too Short, then come back to New York and be listening to PE, you know what I mean? Like. I was inside of this like tribe called Quest slash Young Selsky, Bay Area like OG rappers from that era, you know. Did you catch in uh, in San Jose? I think that was like a big area for um, Latin electro. It was called, you know, like that Debbie Deb and like. Yeah, it was like freestyle in Long Island. Was- yeah, freestyle. Yeah. I knew someone, his name was Schmied. Shout out to Schmied. He had a Datsun flatbed and he used to cruise the strip in San Jose playing all that like freestyle 80s, like with like no seats in his Datsun, (laughs) slammed to the ground, get in there and sit on a milk crate. You know what I mean? One's 18 inch speaker in the back, Alpine system. They had great beats, that stuff. Crazy beats. Corny vocals. Because they were all inspired from, like, Planet Rock beats. Yeah. You know what I mean? All those, like, crazy mid-'80s San Jose, what was it, star music. All that music that was coming out in that, in that space for the cars yeah. was really cool. Can you pinpoint any early influence in your childhood or younger years that set you on this path of being such a futuristic musical iconoclast or whatever? Man, well, big up. I mean, I, my, my main thing really is just, uh, is just an amalgamation of, of like innovation in, in, in BMX and innovation in, in, in probably like a, a lot of the music that I was listening to from, from Schooly D beats to the Beastie Boys, you know, to like Jungle Brothers or whatever. But 
Then there was like craft work and electro and experimental music that I was listening to. So you take all that together. And then I was like idolizing Basquiat when he was still alive. Like when Basquiat was alive, like right before he died, I got huge into him. Like I was like obsessed with Basquiat. That was in 80, that was in 90, right as he died. Yeah, he died in August of 89. So that later that year I got into him. But I think that was probably, there was a shift there with that. And then it was like, um, then it was a situation where I met Beans. And when I met Beans, that was when I said, oh, wow, man, like this music can really go far. And we were just like vibing off of like what we call fine art at that time, which was, you know, just like respected artists. And I think that we were having conversations about those artists and then like he was trying to do stuff and I was listening, watching him. I was trying to do stuff. And uh, so I guess that's kind of how it became. But it was really crazy that uh, the three of us connected like that. And to take it a step further, just to talk back about your original question, is that I'm always thinking about how we can, what can we do to go a little bit further? Because that's how we came in the game, is innovating it. I'd say you were wildly successful with that. Um, and, and speaking of, you know, along with the music break dancing and the, the visual art aspect, you know, Basquiat, you mentioned. Um, yeah. I've been thinking a lot lately about the term hip hop and how originally it denoted the four elements, not just the music, but the, um, you know, graffiti, break dancing, right. and turntablism. And back in the early 80s, those things were really connected and they tended to overlap with each other. And they were originally also connected by this sort of New York City sensibility, I guess, because that's where it came from. For sure. And, and that was kind of the definition of hip hop. It had to, in a way, represent not just the New York sensibility, but it was just like connected to these other art elements. Yeah. Um, and it's a very unique thing to hip hop because I can't think of any other group of art forms like in a contemporary time that were unified under a title like that. Yeah. Maybe I'm missing something, but even just like, you know, the punk scene, it went along with some, you know, fashion, yeah, some um, maybe political kind of elements, but still, like, there's nothing I think that really compares to hip hop as being like there's four elements, you know, just this real um, strongly worded definition. And mm -hmm. I feel like the grouping of those art forms gave the music more energy, and the music was probably like the driving force that helped spread the other three elements around the world. Right. But then I've been thinking like now, in these current times, all those elements, while they're still thriving in their own ways, yeah. they're, they're separate from each other yeah. for the most part. You know, of course, like turntablism is still very much attached to rap music, but not as much. And rap music as a whole isn't attached to turntablism right. very much. So basically, yeah. I guess the question... I want to ask is, is hip hop as a culture still alive today? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's more alive. It's it's so alive that it's ingrained in our contemporary uh, vernacular, speech, ways of being, ways things are cut on clothes. You know, the the way that people move, gestures, from the news down to you know a, a little kid going to school. It expresses itself through culture. So yeah, it definitely, it definitely is here and it is a part of our, our culture. And it almost is like more so even than just music, it is actually kind of like a way we've been living inside of, right? We've been living inside of things that are cut certain ways because of hip hop. We've been living inside of phraseology that's been used a certain way because of hip hop and motion and gesture that because of, you know? So it is interesting. Um, to think about it like that. Yeah, you're right. I think it's it's manifested in in so many different ways that we're probably not even aware of, or you know, most people don't think about yeah. generally. There's one thing though that that that, that, I'm, that I've been thinking a lot about, and what and a space that I'm that I'm moving into, um, and that is is that there's a reward system that comes packaged with making music, and I find that um, once you get rid of the reward system, the research starts to get really interesting. And so I'm really in a space where I'm like trying to let go of the reward system, you know, and I'm really just trying to like go into a deep space of research and see what's possible with, with beats and, and words and whatnot. Mm. So I just wanted to just, just, bring that up and talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to hear more about that. So you're talking about the reward system of um, like social cachet and, yeah. and sex and yeah. money. And it's always been, it's been a part of music since the jukebox, right? Music was based on like, you put money in, you hear your favorite hit song mm -hmm. and the hit is supposed to um, transform the singer into this like, godlike figure and you know the singer becomes famous and has the cars and has the girls you know it's this this archetype of like success inside of music you know what i mean and um reward and so i was wondering a lot about like how much my actions have to do with like this idea of being rewarded and that archetype playing itself that's kind of like yeah a philosophy i've been kind of going into like this thinking a lot about like deconstructing the reward system is that something you were thinking about um, prior to the release of Error Tape, or is it more uh, recent you've been thinking about that? Yeah, more, way more recently. Error Tape was all about reward system. Okay. Error Tape was like, I'm going to prove that I can live in France and make something lyrically dope in another country, that I can do it as a solo artist, and that I can do it and make it really dope on that level. Yeah. So, okay, then you take away the rewards, then why do you do music without the rewards? Yeah, you, you do it because you found like a combination to like infinity. You found a combination of like voice and beat that when other people are in your tribe hear that, they start to, they, they nod, they vibe off of that same, you know, uh, energy that comes down from the infinite through through you expressing that and sharing with your tribe, you know, mm, and yeah. it goes back to like sitting around the campfire, 
you know, a little bit and saying like, yo, I got this collection of ideas on beat, check this out. Um, and of course, you know, I say all that, but you know, my joints gotta be locked in, joints gotta be dope. <laughs> you know, it's not a question of that. It's just a question of like, trying to like, um, step back from a lot of the reward system and a lot of the expectation that had made me confused in the past. Right. Yeah. So it's like, you're saying, you know, connecting with the, the outer realms, the, uh, whatever unseen dimensions, that's the, that's the creation part. And then, then having other people hear and appreciate it. That's like a, maybe like a human connection or communion, like, feeling a, a part of something larger yeah. on the earthly and a spiritual plane? Or? Yeah, I mean, we can, we, we, can, we can definitely say that. And that doesn't mean you can't monetize. You know what I mean? It just means that the first conversation I'm having is, what can I bring to my fellow man, woman? What can I bring to the table that's going to make people like, yo, that's ill, I, I like that. That's going to be able to help me with, with my energy. And that's the first conversation to have. And anything that gets in the way of that is actually a distraction to, to the process and the spiritual guide of making joints. Because now we got to move past reward just because the, the medium is, is older. We're more mature now. So now, you know, it asks for different things, right? So we have to go deeper because we're just more mature now. So when you're, when you're making music with that idea, I imagine it, it changes the approach and the content to some degree. Yeah. So can you talk about first, maybe sonically, how you've seen it change your approach at all? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, with the advent of being able to have like, like HD equipment at our fingertips, number one, that's amazing. Then the second part is how do you gain access to like, your skill set that it actually takes to operate one of these DAWAs, one of these beat making machines, right? So then you get your skills, your hard skills. And then when you get those, you're in a good spot. But I think that, you know, where I found some difficulty is that I found difficulty in finishing. Um, I found difficulty in uh, having a song and then having it mixed and then me saying, I'm going to have to mix this or me saying, okay, I'm going to pay the homie over here 25 an hour to mix it. But then there, then where's the ROI on that? Right? So then we get into a lot of spending and then we're like, no, well, I just like it like that. All right. Well, you just like it when you don't mix it. Okay. Then it costs you this and you're not ROI. Okay. Maybe you need to learn how to mix. And then you're like, oh, well, well, what am I running from? So I've really uncovered like a lot of my own like fears around like mixing my own music cool. through the process of tape two. And um, it's been deep, man. It's been a deep dive. Uh, now I'm able to, you know, kind of, I can, I can mix. That's awesome. Yeah. And how about from a, from a lyrical uh, standpoint, have your lyrics changed at all with this new perspective? Um, I don't know. You know, what I will say, Jonah, is that uh, is that anything and everything that that I can do to try to push things, you know, vocally, I will try to do. Is you know, so I'll go I go into story mode. 
I go into, you know, the regular way of, of flow and, and joints. Um, and so we just got to wait and see, you know what I'm saying? How that, how that unwinds. But, you know, I definitely, uh, I, man, I, I tell you, man, I'm, I'm pumped. I feel like it's the, I, it's like the first day again, man. It's, it's, it's always the first day for me. Like, I, you know, it's like, just like it was back in the days, how it is now, I just get just as pumped up. You know, it's, I just like making joints. They're crazy sounding, you know what I mean? So now it's just about like finishing my mixes and going ahead and, 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 and being more consistent in terms of dropping things. But um, I'm feeling good now where I'm at, moving on that, in, that, in that direction. Have you felt like more of a creative slump in the past? I haven't felt a creative slump in the past. I've felt a uh, really, really badly toxic relationship with music and money and my life in New York and the suburbs and bills and my neighbors and the outer parts of society that, you know, and rap that doesn't understand like the kind of rap that I was doing. And, you know, all of those forces that I allowed to kind of seep into my psyche, I, I do regret. However, I had to go through the pain teacher to get to the other side. So I, I, I'm all cool with that. You know what I mean? But yeah, if you ask me a question about like, did I have trouble creating before? Uh, I didn't have trouble as much creating. I had tr just trouble with like, balancing life and ROI and music. What is ROI? Return on investment. Okay, yeah, yeah. Making money from from music. Yeah, it's uh I imagine it's it's tough as a an artist who's so far out of the the mainstream and so anti-pop. It's a tough path, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, and, and, and even go a further step than that, things are way harder when you're putting other expectations and a lot of things in front of final product. Yeah. You, you know, we talk about my, you know, APC, like a lot of people just don't understand, like, the level of pressure that we were in as guys creating left field rap to an audience and on a professional level and on a scale but you know like the levels of pressure you know financially being outside the box man you know it was really no joke and you know it's like like seriously man i feel bad like that sometimes when i look back like damn i wish we had a better way of um of figuring out how to deal with ourselves around, you know, pushing so far left, you know what I mean? And then being able to like balance all that out, being, you know, men with families, houses, cars, garages, kids, you know what I mean? We did it. We did that. That's incredible. So when Cass talk about APC, like you're not even seeing the other sides of like our our successes with our families and like still doing like experimental music and having different things, you know, coming in and, you know, uh, we got tired. Guys got totally exhausted from that, man. And I go, of course I'm speaking, you know, I'm speaking from my, my standpoint, but yeah, it was, 
just retiring. And now, and, and it's like, it's like so beautiful now to reconnect and, and, and be at another stage in one's, in one's evolution and just be like, man, wow, that was, wow, bro, this is really going hard, man. Okay. All right. <laughs> you know, wow. All right. Well, you know, moving forward, we, we kind of, without even having to speak on it, really just know, you know what I mean? We just know what, what our own things we were dealing with were. And then, you know, now being collectively together is, it's, it's an actual gift. Well, yeah, I mean, being an individual artist has enough challenges and pressures and you're still, you know, young at that age, you're growing and figuring out who you are and just to be in a group and to be forced to deal with that dynamic of four different people in addition to the, you know, whatever fame you had and those, those pressures, uh, it would be really tough, I'm sure, especially without like some, you know, like a real strong management team yeah. or something. We didn't, you know, that, that wasn't, and, 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 and you know, from my standpoint, I wasn't even really ready for a lot of stuff yet, you know? Yeah. I was still into working out, I was still physically there, but my mind wasn't really where it needed to be. Um, you know, it, it, again, it, I had gotten in a space that had been fatigued, <laughs> basically fatigued, um, and, and not quite as evolved as I would have liked to be. Yeah. I wanna go back to this thought I was having about hip hop and um that the music has brought these disparate cultures together obviously through like sampling as well as the music crossing borders and in a way unifying the world and um i think you could say that as all the elements spread to the distant lands and the general concept of what can be considered quote-unquote hip-hop, it expanded from being just a New York City street orientation to something very much more all-encompassing, now including all ethnicities and classes of people. And Yeah. I feel like um, Anti-Pop Consortium was actually kind of instrumental in showing how hip-hop didn't need to be stuck in any certain location or mindset along with some of the other artists that were, you know, in your, in your sphere, like Mike Ladd, Saul Williams, Company Flow, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course there were, there were major predecessors that I feel like were in that same vein uh, before you, like Ram LZ, Divine Styler, Cool Keith to some degree. Yeah. And um, I wonder if you've thought about your work in those terms, almost like, how you you helped take rap music from its origins of the of the streets in the early 70s or the late 70s and early 80s to a sort of yep. futuristic place you know you took it in you know your music in particular i felt it, it went even beyond international to like an intergalactic yep. and like a time traveling time defying zone you know it's futuristic yeah i like that yeah, there's something very valuable about like this idea of like the torch being handed over and, you know, being inspired by, you know, the first left wing aspects of rap, which were obviously Cool Keith, Divine Styler, 
and Ramal Z, of course, um, with, with the work he's done and, and, and then Gray uh, before that. Uh, so we absolutely were given, handed the torch. We absolutely did know about those records. And, and no, the, the torch was handed over. It was handed over to Co-Flow was before us. And that was earth shattering. I, I went back to that album. It's earth, earth absolutely mm -hmm. earth shattering. Yeah. And the genre. And, and then like, it's just a blessing to be, you know, to be mentioned amongst, you know, really great people. The, the story is continuing to evolve. And uh, it's exciting to be in the present. So I'm just like super stoked that the aesthetic that we brought in is continuing to mature, Jonah. Kind of like, uh, well, timelessness through like experimentation. Because if you're experimenting, then it's, it's never like stuck into a frame of a trend. You'll hear a certain drum element, you know what I mean, in there that may not have been in 10 years ago, what have you. But you know, experimentation is nice because it allows us to step out of like trend cycles. You mentioned Gray. Who's that? So Gray was the band that was uh, Basquiat. Oh, right. And a guy by the name who actually was named High Priest. It wasn't really a rap, but it was an experimental band. Mr. I wanted to mention, I feel like in addition to those artists, there's other ones like Sun Ra and George Clinton who have kind of similarly taken oh, yeah. uh, an established form of music and sort of reoriented it towards like an alien or otherworldly frame of reference, which I personally really, you know, identify with because I've always felt like a sort of outsider. Yeah, and, man, um, I'm all about that 100%. I'm always thinking about those records, so great to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I was just curious if you yeah. connect, connect to the, the whole, like, alien In concept. every way. I mean, you know, Priest is more of a Sun Ra guy than I am. He knows the details. I love Sun Ra. Uh, and for George Clinton, Parliament, Funkadelic, all that stuff is, like, my, my go-to. My go-to. And, and the most incredible vocal arrangements in the world you know incredible vocal arrangements yeah and 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 they they took risk at their time and it just forget it what, what do you say incredible work incredible work incredibly inspiring yeah yeah what was your actual first involvement in making music did you start writing raps first or what how'd you get into it yeah, I mean, it was, I just knew Priest and Beans. I was doing video work. I was writing for like Herb. Um, and I, I met those guys and we just started hanging out as friends. We were all, we were talking about art and beats and stuff. They were recording and they kind of had their own thing. And then I kind of started recording. From then on, we just started hanging out and making music together and probably like 95. So your first raps are actually, they were, Pressed to wax, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I was gonna ask you if you could recite some of your earliest lyrics, but I guess I don't need to. I guess I can go listen to them. Yeah, I don't even remember. 
No, but I think that there was a pivotal time where, you know, we were searching for identity, trying to find a voice, trying to make rap. And it was always a magic trick. I mean, remembering that like in the mid nineties and the early nineties, it was really hard to rap, man. Rapping good was really hard. So yeah, stiff competition, so I guess. Took on, the time. Yeah, it was super hard to rap good. Especially if you were just starting. Yeah. I don't even know, man. It was hard. And, 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 you know, recording, you go record your voice, you hate your voice, you hate what it sounds like. You're like, damn, I'm not a rapper voice. It's not, a, I don't, I'm not, where am I in this? Like, how am I? You go through all those and finally you get something that sounds cool. Other people like it and then you build on top of it. But definitely when you're coming from the space of being inspired by the Sunrise and the George Clintons and being inspired by experimental music, the call is even louder to like, break from status quo. The calling has always been really, really to both experiment and, and to be able to connect at the same time. Ah, hard job, man. Yeah, well, I, I first heard your stuff, I guess it was just a little bit after Tragic Epilogue came out. Right, right. And I was immediately attracted to just the name of the group, Anti-Pop Consortium. I think this was at a time when I was like a, a musical kleptomaniac. I would go into Tower Records and I would, uh, I would just take stacks of CDs and just walk out the door with them. So I, yeah, think, I, crazy. I think I just got your CD because of the cover. Maybe I saw yeah. that, uh, crazy. Who was, did you have AC Alone on a song yeah. or something? Yeah, yeah. AC Alone and Farrell Watch. On yeah. First record, yeah. But um, I loved it immediately when I heard it too. And then, you know, um, the sonic quality of the music as well as the lyrical approach along with that name, it felt like a real anti-establishment kind of boundary pushing spirit. Yeah. You had a song called fuck rap. And yep. I just wonder if you could talk about it in your mind at the time, exactly what it was you were rebelling against. Um, I think it was more on the inside. We were, we were really just researching. You know, we were inside of rap, researching what was possible inside of rap and being inspired by, you know, the people of the time and people before that time. So there was a period of time where Jiru the Damager was really, really like, wow, you know? And so I think that Jiru, no matter what anybody says, Jiru had a big effect on APC. Hmm. Like, come clean, the original. Like those records, man, were really influential to APC. Yeah, I kind of missed. Uh, I mean, I heard J. Rue back when he was uh, he was first kind of making his mark, but it never really um, appealed to me so much. And I know a lot of people that I really respect speak highly of J. Rue, so I wonder if you can go into a little bit about what what you feel like made him special. Well, I mean, you know, with J. Rue was it was like mind science. It was raps that were like hard, but also anti-gangster. Yeah. And it was legit, like verses were crazy, beats were off the you know, crazy, you know, DJ Premier on the beat. So it was it was just it was just man, powerful. That's what I'm called on the street. Good cannot be cheap, but really it beat you see I'm street wise. 
a con game bro. Kicking the Barbie bullshit, too small for Willie Bobo. Not stressing five hot hand and silo. Live in the land of crooks, yes, Brooklyn's the borough. Homicide sinful, East New York, with a manic, depressive psycho murder a storm. You know, kind of coming up in that environment, being inspired by that definitely pushed, pushed us. I know Beans, man, I feel like at that point, he was next in line, in my opinion, to J. Rue. I felt like he was next in line. He had a single out, and he was next in line for me and what I like. But yeah, so that, that sheds a little bit of light on J. Rue's influence in terms of just J. Rue's anti-gangster energy beats that were always left of center experimental beats for that time, right? Yeah. Yeah, just that upliftment mindset. So with APC, we were like, yo, that's ill. And then we just went and did us with the beats that, you know, that collectively we put together. Priest producing, me producing, and, and Beans producing, um, Blaze adding in also, and being, being the engineer with the vision. I mean, Blaze is the engineer with the vision that cemented everything into APC. You know what I mean? If not, then it would just be like different producers. There'd be a, there would be an engineer, and it would sound like a compilation. But Blaze put it all together, so we really had the APC sound. And uh, even when it was lo-fi or high, whatever, it was still like his gluing all the logic together really made those records like full pieces. Right, yeah. Beans also mentioned Blaze as the, the nucleus. Yeah. Um, you know, I've sadly, I never had the pleasure of seeing you all perform live, but I have seen footage okay. and have been really impressed by the way you all seem to be, uh, a lot of it seemed like improv on the, on the machines, um, right? Mm -hmm. So I wonder if that sort of collaboration on the musical compositions was something that happened in the studio as well, or was it different? I'll tell you, man, Jonah, the thing, this is actually, I, I really want to like definitely say that the, the live tap-in stuff with the beats is all, it's all because we know each other. It's pretty much, that's exactly it. It's nothing else. It's really nothing else. It's because I know Beans, I know Priest, I know Blaze, and I know what they like. And I'm trying to stay out of the way and just do what I do without getting in the way of them. It's really, that's what it is with the lot. And it's crazy because you could take a bunch of beat machines, put it in the middle of the floor, plug them all in. And then if we, if we sit on them together without anything, we can make something. You know? Yeah, it's really impressive to see. Uh... Yeah, it's just a very weird connection. You know, it's a very weird connection, man, with, with, with us. It's very strange. It's just very strange. Yeah. So, you know, since Antipop as a group has been mainly inactive for the last decade, yep. um, you've put out Error Tape 1 at the end of 2016, which I think is amazing. And I put it near the top of all the Antipop related projects. To Nicholas Copernicus All I know is I survived the fire in the furnaces Now I'm about to have an out of body like it's alimony When the category is my laboratory and observatory of the territory Where it's purgatory for a nigga And it's mandatory that a January, February The melancholy quicker So I don't have to swim inside this liquor So I won't have to dream that I'm a victor Swallow shots in the dark And I just wonder what else you've been up to over the last decade 
uh, artistically and otherwise? Yeah, yeah. So if we go last decade, we would just say uh, 2010, after finishing, the, we, we did the tour uh, into 2011 for Fluorescent Black. Um, and then Priest, myself, and Blaze, Beans left the group. Priest, myself, and Blaze continued on with a project we did with David Lynch and a contemporary artist named Loris Griot called the Snorks Project. So I was very much involved in that. And that Is that was, an album? There was a, a little tiny album that came out to an art film that David Lynch was involved in and Charlotte Rampling was involved in. And it was yeah. held at some French theaters here, very small. But uh, that was something that was an impact that was felt in the contemporary art world a bit. And that was cool. That was in 2012. Uh, in 2012, I was also published in um, uh, arts magazine France for digital drawings that I did, like these uh, motion, motion drawings I did uh, in Flash. And then uh, 2013 was a final APC show. For me, I had just been moving to France. Then I worked on tape one, got a, a commission to do the music and act in a TV series. That was in 2015. What was it, the series? It was uh, called Aura. I played an English teacher who was also a beat maker. That was cool. That worked out well for me. And um, that brings us into 2017. Same time Era Tape 1 came out. Um, you know, we had some love from Vice. had some love from uh, a, a, a biopic that they, you know, they did on me. Uh, and then I got involved in, in, in a an art project that had to do with like a dancer and some projections. And it was, it was like, it was really cool. And it was, it was, it was just in development. We did a couple of shows with that and, and that was it. Um, after that, I, I kind of laid, laid low and, and, uh, and basically worked on tape two, uh, continued to work on uh, my work I do with clients, uh, with training and, 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 and um, some coaching work. And then just continue to blaze forward with making art and, and, and making some cash and, and making joints and living in Paris and, you know, riding some BMX when I can and, and staying focused on beats. And, you know, Jonah just really just trying to get better and using like this next go round is like a way to, to, to kind of, you know, release music, inspire, inspire stuff through, through visual visual works and, and, and keep pressing. Yeah. 
So yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear Error Tape 2 is on the way. What, what does the title mean, Error Tape? Well, just when you're learning, it's by trial and error, you know? Yeah. So I just figured I would use like error as, as a way to, to signify experimentation in music and, and me getting better through trial and error. I'm working on that. And, and then um, me and the guys are, are, are talking about working on new stuff and working on some new stuff. Um, guys meaning anti-pop or? Yeah, I mean, APC, we're, we're back talking. That's great news. So that's cool. And, yeah. uh, you know, I'm just really happy that, uh, that we're back as friends and uh, building and, and, and hanging and getting ideas and stuff like that. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for your time. Man, blessings, my brother. Really, Jonas, great, great conversation, great questions. I mean, I, I really appreciate it. And it's coming from a place that is, is, is you know, really deep within me saying, like, extending uh, the thanks to you uh, to just bring these stories about us out here into the digital space. There's a full 45 minutes of additional interviews with APC at patreon.com slash weirdrap. Among other things, we talk about quarantine, language, production techniques, the making of Shaki's album, Adidai, The Unrocked Story, and even more on Saul Williams. It's three bucks for that and all the previous and future bonus content. And now we have an exclusive, officially sanctioned remix of Anti-Pop Consortium by Megman, aka Manuel Okendo, who's done production on several APC projects in the past. Earl Blaze was kind enough to send this my way. Just for you, dear Weird Rap listeners, this is the world premiere of Megman's remix of Apparently. Ball beans is. HB is. Earl Blaze is. Sai is. Ball beans is. In a city of dignitaries, blue chip stock murder rate blackberry. I switch lanes, things get carried out the trunk through the air that you hear rarely. Outside the machine, outside the machine. M dot, he will not drop till his knees chop, knees chop, then he pop up cause his sleeves lock. Unbelieve how he got them things out of Caesar. Overseas swaying like them trees in a Currently, gotta ease up. That's my security currently, gotta ease up. Trapped off and buried underneath the ground in the rap cemetery. Patterns line up on the track like military. Still, it's outside the machine. Outside the machine. H brain never serve fiends from the triple beam. Overseas tower over teams like I'm Yao Ming. Never look back to rap the maximum call that the now thing. Never look back to rap the maximum call that the now thing. HP and the revolution of an HD. Break these having the mechanisms to take me outside the came before, send them off to explore, send them out the door, send them off to the store, send them go to war, lose a finger, count them four, obliterate your heaven, severed in my insides, or spit like a white suit, red from your wristlet, spit like a white suit, red from your wristlet, fluorescent in black, prove true 
what you lack. Exemplary on the track, you can't afford to relax. Outside the machine. Outside the machine. My man above men with the mic in my hand. In the crowd with no legs to stand. Vlog about it. You know you love it when the tongue can help but touch it. And if you an MC, then I guess we agree to disagree. If you an MC, then I guess we agree to disagree. Outside the machine. Speaking of anti-pop consortium and futuristic rap music, I wanted to mention a book I'm reading called Dead Precedents, How Hip-Hop Defines the Future by Roy Christopher, which is a very well-written, intellectual look at artists like Ram LZ, Tricky, and more. It compares the innovations and tendencies of hip-hop to science fiction and whatnot. I recommend it, and hopefully we'll have Roy Christopher on a future episode. Brzezowski recently released his album The Subjugation of Bread, produced by C Money Burns on Milled Pavement Records, and I talked with him about politics and rap that doesn't rhyme. Optic nerve on the zirconia swift analysis, the dirt to avoid medical issues, cough twice, complacent with trust fall, windfall last fall, shuffling some softer drugs for the afternoon, coin jar on standby forever, statement to inbox sans the payment, a few scars from landmines deposit clever, shedding from denizens to tritus displaced, stood under stoplight, chuckled from amazement, there's an egress in the bottom of the bucket. You know, surprisingly, there was been like a you know great commercial reaction to the record. Uh, when I say the record, I mean the tape and the tactical manual, you know, lyric book. It was probably the biggest pre-sales, you know, first day announced that I've ever had. Um, you know, we did it super limited. We kept it very limited to uh, 150 tapes, 125 tactical manuals and uh and only a hundred bundles. And uh I mean they just they just kind of flew. I mean, I I I think the idea of the the scarcity of projects that people are doing really helped out and sort of the niche aspect of the project really helped out. And the fact that I've been talking about societal collapse for 20 years finally was timely. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much, that's pretty much what happened. And uh, so we're almost out of everything. Um, but um, yeah, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited about that. I've had great feedback. I've had really decent press considering the fact that, you know, everyone is stuck at home and not touring. And I know that you have heavy experience, you know, on the road as well. And so to not be able to announce 10, 12, 20, 30 shows to support a record, it really does kind of change the dynamic of it. And I think, you know, our initial thought was to press, you know, at least 300, but it was, it seemed sort of senseless with the fact that we can't come to your town, wow you with big words and beats and uh shake your hand and sell you a, a t-shirt no you know like people ask to uh, wear the shirts wear the shirt we didn't even do shirts like what's what's the point of i just felt like what's the point of doing a t-shirt right now but we've had enough people ask that we're gonna we're gonna do it anyway after the fact but so th that's been the case man i feel really good the press has been really good and they haven't pushed too hard against the political aspect of it which is very out front on this one yeah i was curious like Yes, for people who don't know, it's like a very outwardly Marxist uh, criticism of capitalism is the concept of the album, essentially. Yeah, right? yeah, it's it's very very out front Marxist synthesis, and you know the the whole genesis of it was C Money and I were chuckling to ourselves. I don't know, probably last December, and we were on the phone, and we were like, man, nobody knows what 
communism and socialism and Antifa or any of these things mean. They just bander these terms about like it's cool. And uh, although, you know, I, you had said in the last video, like communism means 25 different things to 25 different people. And this is true. But we were like, well, if no one knows the definitions, let's like pretend that we're just going to teach it to them. And, uh, and really kind of dive into, you know, what it would be like to speak from that very specific viewpoint. And it really didn't alienate all that many folks, clearly. Well, yeah, you know, everyone has this take on whether they're pro or anti-communist, but it seems like almost nobody knows what the definition of Marxism, communism, socialism is. Certainly. Um, Actually, I listened recently to this, uh, the latest episode of Revolutionary Left Radio, the podcast, um, that yeah. it gives a really good, um, concise kind of rundown of the basics of what Marxism and communism is in like, if you listen in one and a half times speed like I did, you get a really good foundation <laughs> in an hour, yeah. you know? Right. I have a lot of respect for Rev Left Radio. I really like what they're doing because they're making like these really dense theoretical things like super accessible. Yeah. And that episode is called the fundamentals of Marxism. If anyone's interested and tell awesome. me, tell me Jason, if I'm getting this right, the definition of Marxism is basically it's a way of looking at social dynamics, the economy and the government. It's based on the writings of Karl Marx, Friedrich Engels, and a ton of people since then, because it's an evolving set of ideas. Uh, correct? I would say that can be considered true. I mean, of course, it's a lot more complicated than that. It's, no, that I mean, as a distillation, I don't think I could have done it better. So, uh, I, yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great way to, to look at it. It's, it's the relationship of, of <clears throat> what, you know, uh, production, capital, alienation, and the people that, you know, are behind all these machinations at different levels. It shouldn't be like this, like, really scary, bizarro, thing to everyone the general tenet is that if you contribute something you own a piece of that something and another way that people quickly dismiss the concept is citing various countries and rulers in the past that mm. were under the banner of communism and were disastrous in one way or another so what do you say to that argument well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm one of those people that say, uh, you don't know you hate communism because it hasn't really been tried yet. So this kind of relates to, you know, the last episode I was talking about labeling and how, yeah. you know, for example, like, okay, various governments have labeled themselves as communists, but they weren't actually, right? Correct. Correct. And so the name, you know, for good reason has become dirtied dirtied and demonized certainly yeah thinking of romania stalin in particular hoja uh mao yeah certainly yeah i mean as someone that's just been involved in in hip-hop like language is super important to me and the functional definitions of words are very important to me so if you and i don't agree on the functional definition of the same word or concept we can't even talk about it yeah you mentioned this in the, uh, in the Flat Earth episode with Jizza regarding labels, and I, I thought that this was a really great point, was the sort of idea that Antifa and, you know, the idea that it is somehow this overarching threat. And it is an overarching threat if you really, A, value your white privilege or B, uh, are willing to fight for your white privilege or 
um, are of a slant where you feel like defending a status quo that is unhealthy to people that don't look, sound, pray, et cetera, like yourself, uh, yeah, it is dangerous. And, uh, and there are people that among the anti fake movement in the U.S., but also particularly in Europe, and, uh, and I know that you've done extensive touring in Europe, so you could probably speak to this as well. You know, um, <clears throat> this is not a new thing. This thing has been around forever. And they're communists and anarchists and just like middle of the road liberals involved in Antifa in Europe. It's not like this radical idea to reject uh, Hitler and Mussolini's legacy. That's not radical. Yeah, but the problem with the term, though, is you're talking about it with the definition that it's against fascism. But when now a lot of centrists and further right wing types have redefined it as someone who is violent, militant, um, yelling in the streets and wants to, you know, kill racists or something like that. Well, I would say the, the goal is not to go like burn down your local post office or anything like that. The goal is to get the fascists the fuck out of the streets. And sometimes that takes a little bit more than a sign chanting and handholding. Yeah. I guess the point is that there's, you know, even among people that would call themselves Antifa, different definitions. Yeah. And you would, and you'll find that with BLM, you'll find that with, uh, I mean, one of my favorite things is when, um, when uh, right-wing folks in the U.S. Uh, confuse liberals with neoliberalism. And I get, I get instantaneous belly chuckles out of this. Like, neoliberals, I'm like, wait, wait, wait. Republicans are definitely neoliberals, buddy. Uh, but again, it comes back to the, you know, the mutual understanding of a functional definition. Yeah, and then even like Republicans and Democrats, the original definitions of those things are completely different than what they're commonly understood as today. Right, the idea of the party of Lincoln. Don't fucking make me laugh. And it makes it exhausting for, especially for young people, I think, that are trying to engage in these conversations and have like meaningful input, listening, trying to speak, trying to assert themselves because, you know, the amount of self-education that goes into it, it is a lot. Yeah. But um, I wanted to talk to you about something I noticed when I was listening to the album, which is you're not rhyming very much at all. And choosing not to rhyme in rap is something I've been thinking about lately. So... I was wondering if you could talk about if that's a conscious thing that you're doing or what your thoughts are on rhyming versus not. So um, if I can be really self-analytical on that, I've been putting out non-rhyming shit since my first album. Um, not every song, but like Mary Shelley Overdrive came out in 2000. It came out nationwide in 2006. And there were a lot of songs, I'd say about... 40% of the songs on that record didn't rhyme. But I was also making sure that I hit all the, you know, the ones and the threes on the four bar beat. So people were fooled for a long time. Yeah, I never noticed it. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I guess one of the most freeing things when I first started rapping in like, you know, 99. Yeah, it was 99 that I got really serious with it. I mean, I had a steady diet of yeah, of course, a lot of East Coast stuff, a lot of East Coast New York stuff, a lot of, uh, you know, your freestyle fellowships and, and things like that. And um, there was also that that whole rise of underground, like CDR stuff. Um, you know, there was your Anticons and your Def Juxes and what have you, where digging down into what I would call the 
tangential artists from that or, or artists that were sort of spun out second generation, whether they got signed or not, that just gave me the freedom. I remember one time I was, uh, I was hanging out with K the I, it was probably 2003 and we had already, you know, I'd already featured him on a few like CDRs that I had done and we were doing little tours together and we were hanging out, you know, at my buddy's house. We were both living at my buddy's house. We were both broke as shit. And uh, Agent 8, shout out to Agent 8, uh, up in Portland. And I, I was like, man, I just, just so uninterested in rhyming on the one and the three. And he goes, why do you rhyme at all, dude? Who gives a shit? And it was just like that clean to him. You know what I mean? And it was like, and that's when I went back and I listened to like, more like the big just solo shit and you know stuff like that where it just it doesn't really matter i mean if you say it with conviction with a rhythm it doesn't matter what the rhythm is and you know for instance like one of the things that i absolutely loathe the most not to listen to but to create like rhyming double time like i couldn't give less of a fuck i couldn't imagine giving less of a fuck it was something that i really used to enjoy and i it goes over well live um but yeah i'm just not interested in rap tricks anymore like I, I like the words and i like landing on the beat but maybe it's not the one and the three you know maybe it's the four and the two and then the next bar it's the one and the three and then uh, i i'm interested in dancing across the four four time signature but not necessarily being committed to it or married to it or any time signature for that matter yeah i think um calling it a rhyme trick is is true because uh, the way i've been thinking about it recently is that if you rhyme some disparate ideas or uh statements that are kind of debatable and built on kind of faulty logic but you rhyme them people mm -hmm. will give them more credence than right. they otherwise would have so it's, it is like a trick to like make something sound more profound than it might otherwise be. And then Certainly. on the other hand, though, I've been thinking how like you can write something that's really solid and profound and then make it rhyme, but it, it will devalue it a little bit. It will make it seem less serious, more childish. Well, it, yeah, it, it becomes less about art and more about rap at that point. And I'm not interested in that at, at this point in my career at all like it's it's all about, all art. about, all about, all about art you'll find links to brzowski's album and most of the other artists included in this episode in the episode notes and if you want to hear more of me and brzowski's conversation about navigating online politics and the expanding definition of hip-hop you can visit patreon.com slash weird rap i like to mention another podcast that you can check out each episode and this time I'll talk about In Search of Sauce, which is essentially some hip-hop music journalists talking about the work of other hip-hop music journalists. Which sounds like an odd concept, but they get into some pretty thoughtful discussions about rap music. It tends to be music that's more mainstream and pop-oriented than I prefer, but I still find it engrossing. So if that sounds interesting to you, check out In Search of Sauce. Weird Rap is distributing an album that came out last year, which is Falling Up by Whatever Your Heart Desires. It's a mostly instrumental project that includes a couple rap tracks with Cool Keith and Micah Nine.
The onset, the crime, my bomb, third behind, a long breath, the primer, quality, follow breezes through the concept, the time of peace and decent. If you read in the feeds, and reps speed in the bleeds, and bluffs, mad to be teeing up another tree, the pub can gradually speed up. Due to a super fast flow, downloaded, decoded, unfolded, a Russian to impose modernity, eternity. If you heard the weird rap compilation album Interdependence earlier this year, then you heard a remix of the song Dr. What, featuring Cool Keith. The original version is on the Falling Up album. It's a really unique, unpredictable listen, which obviously I highly recommend. It's on digital and limited edition vinyl at weirdrap.bandcamp.com. I'd like to introduce the listeners to spoken word music and visual artist Beverly Fresh, who will be conducting some interviews on future episodes of Weird Rap. This is him performing a piece called Ode to Ricky Dunn and Mookie Blaylock. Got a $30 watch and a million dollar smile. Picking pockets, make the cut. Coming down the aisle, I see you, Rube. A big old dude, and I'm a booster. Big boy, my dip so smooth. I got my Duke, my Duke, man. Hey, how you doing? Chat it up. Bump what I cut it up. I make the touch, cause I never felt the brush. Wallet in the cuff link. Ring pink, big thief. I'm working with a whiz mob. Let me pick that purse off, so soft, lift off. Hold your wallet, watch your watch. Pass the poke and dodge the cops. Student of stealth, so slick. I got superior dips. Slip it in, slide it out. You know what I'm talking about. Necklace, I'm the best there is. I take the ward from your breast. This is the professor with pressure. Beat the mark for his leather. Cause I'm cunning, I'm cutting. I'm gonna get you cousin. Now take it. The light finger swipes me. Now take it. I'm the cannon, now take it, divvy up the cut, divvy up the cut, now take it, divvy up the cut, divvy up the cut, now take it, take, 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 now take it, take, 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 now take it. Lately I've been doing some deep dives into the international weird rap scene. You can hear some very unique findings from the Middle East, Asia, and beyond that I've reposted at soundcloud.com slash weirdrap, as well as youtube.com slash weirdrap, and the Weird Rap Radio playlist on Spotify, which you can find at sptfy.com slash weirdrap, or just go to weirdrap.com for links to all the weird rap stuff. And there's been a ton of great new music releases. I keep an updated list with links at the Weird Rap subreddit. Some standouts for me include Dose One's G is for Job. Died you a cop, you let line one. Day in the focus, face prequel. All of them codes you first became in high school. Is it Dose The Gentle Fall by Serengeti. Just a single fella alone having the time of the sunset. Not worried about expectations that ain't done yet. But the chips fall where they land, dust settles where they set. Just a single fella sitting socks off with the sunset. Schizoaffective Disorder and Cannabis Dependence by Lil Ghost Rider. 
Droog by Droog. That's spelled D R W G. And finally, Wild Height Keach by Height Keach. They said hold your power. They said moving teams. Hold to your sweetness. Hold to your screams out in these northern lights. Loving nights inside us still. You can find links to those and a bunch of other recent unusual rap releases at reddit.com slash r slash weird rap. If you want to write in, you can message weirdrap3000 at gmail.com. We got a celebrity letter from Celestiphone, who put out one of my favorite albums of the year, Weevil in Disguise. He's currently producing a project for Youngman, a.k.a. MC Paul Barman, a track of which is on the aforementioned Weird Rap compilation album. And Celestiphone writes to us, Just finished episode two of your podcast. The Kambada interview is something special. Kambada's description of the trap sound reminds me of something Captain Beefheart said. No, I won't do anything that fixative. Hypnotic music. I don't like hypnotism music. He equated popular music rhythms to, quote, that mama heartbeat. I don't want to hypnotize anybody. I just want to play. I mean, I want things to change, like the patterns and shadows that fall from the sun, end quote. I'm surprised you didn't mention weird in your list of labels. And there, Celestiphone is referring to my critique of the human tendency to label things from my last episode. To which I'll respond, yes, it's very true. As much as I resist labeling, the very name of this podcast is doing exactly that. And I can defend myself by reiterating that a certain degree of labeling is necessary for communication and discussion, and that the weird rap label is such a large and amorphous categorization that I think it largely avoids the dangers of labeling things like political movements, belief systems, and more specific music genres. But yes, it's, uh, it's questionable, and I often get into discussions about what is and isn't weird. I'll just say for now that it's a gray area and a matter of perspective, and when I say weird, I mean unusual, which can include advanced, experimental, and accidentally unique things. Anyway, Celestiphone continues addressing the last episode's interview with Nate Patron. Nate should definitely listen to my stuff if he's interested in the curatorial DJ-esque production, especially since that's what I care the most about when it comes to hip-hop. I like that descriptor for Madlib, and I'm glad he wrote about him, since he is the best. I agree, Nate. If you're listening, you should check out Celestiphone's music, which includes a very deep and obscure range of sampled vinyl, in addition to beautiful raps. If you've enjoyed this painstakingly produced podcast, please show your appreciation with a rating and review to help us with the algorithms. It can take less than 30 seconds. Also, you can sign up for the Weird Rap Digest, a roughly monthly email newsletter at weird.substack.com. 
Remember, weirdness means diversity, advancement, exploration, and integration. It's a direct challenge to the status quo, to mundanity, and to rigidity. So until next time, please, let's all celebrate weird rap music to make a better and weirder world.